This is Macro Horizons, episode 226, Where There's Smoke, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey and Vale Hartman to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 12th. And with the atmosphere in the Northeast in sharp focus, or haze as the case may be, we're reminded that air quality is as serious as a venti dark roast with an extra shot or two. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market put in a very choppy performance. Yields backed up rather dramatically, and while not reaching 4%, 10-year yields did offer an attractive buying opportunity for investors who were otherwise sidelined. But that wasn't the tone early in the week. Early in the week, ISM services disappointed, and given the relevance of the service sector and the fact that sentiment around the service sector has been running at elevated levels, this particular print shifted the tone and left the market with an early bullish undertone. Eventually, we saw rate hikes from the Bank of Canada and the RBA, which shifted the tone decidedly in favor of higher rates. We also have the looming issuance in the bill sector, which contributed to upward pressure on two-year yields in a sympathy downtrade, if nothing else. As a result, the theme of flattening or a deeper inversion in twos, tens, and fives bonds was evident, and while we maintain that this year's big macro trade will ultimately be the re-steepening of the curve, the recent price action went decidedly in the opposite direction. This does provide a more attractive placement to enter steepening trades, but the fact of the matter is our core steepening bias went against us in the week just past. Updated flow information from the Japanese Ministry of Finance showed that Japanese investors were once again net buyers of overseas bonds and notes, totaling more than $3 billion for the week ended June 2nd. This is the fourth consecutive week of net buying. Now, while the weekly MOF data doesn't distinguish between treasuries and other sovereign debt, on average, roughly 75 to 80% of the flows do tend to be into U.S. Treasuries. Now, we'll have more information in this regard once the monthly data is published. But for the time being, an investor base that was expected and signaled that they would be net sellers, or at least not buyers, does seem to be taking advantage of any incremental backup in U.S. rates to add duration exposure. With overseas monetary policy decidedly in focus, we're reminded at not only the magnitude of rate hikes that every major central bank, with the exception of the Bank of Japan, delivered in 2022 and the beginning of 2023, but also 
the pace at which these moves occurred. Looking back in history, it's very rare to see such a concerted effort on the part of all major central banks to tighten policy. And when we put this in the context of the delayed impact with which rates flow through to the real economy, it's difficult not to be somewhat concerned during the latter half of 2023 in terms of overall economic performance, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe, the U.K., Canada, and the global system as a whole. While there was very little data on this week's docket, we did receive several key pieces of information via ISM services, initial jobless claims, and two surprise hikes from the Reserve Bank of Australia and the Bank of Canada. And these events transpired in a roughly 30% chance of a hike in June and a coin flip regarding a hike in July. It is a fascinating time for monetary policy on the global stage. There's no question about that. Powell and the FOMC are faced with a difficult decision on Wednesday. The rest of the world is ostensibly still in hiking mode. Not only did the Bank of Canada and the RBA go, but expectations are for the ECB to continue moving policy rates higher this summer. As a result, the debate around the probability of the Fed moving on Wednesday has been very topical, although the Fed Fund's futures market has drifted back to assuming that there's no rate hike. Now, clearly, the CPI data on Tuesday will set the tone for the market's interpretation of the Fed's reaction function to the realized data. That nuance is worth offering simply because the Fed's messaging has made it very clear that it's a high bar to hike in June, but not necessarily in July. So our take is that the May CPI data will define the trade for the July probability as opposed to the June per se. And this gets at a debate that we had this week, which was how much we would need to see the market price in a hike in June, or frankly July for that matter, for the Fed to view investors as giving the green light for another tightening policy move. While yes, throughout this cycle, given the nature of inflation, of the regional banking crisis, there's been no shortage of discussion around the potential for emergency Fed actions, let's remember that barring a global pandemic, the Fed's operating framework is not really in the business of shock or surprise. And so from that perspective, it means that if the market has repriced to the prospect for higher policy rates after any given meeting, what we've tended to see is that anytime a hike is 70% or more priced into the Fed Fund's futures market, Powell has been content to go ahead and take that opportunity to follow through with another move that will presumably continue to combat inflation. So this becomes especially relevant given that we're not going to be able to hear any official communication after we get the CPI data. And that means that there's a risk that we're going to be going into Wednesday afternoon with the market priced somewhere below 70%, but almost certainly not at 0%. And it almost goes without saying that we will get a leak via the financial media on Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, particularly if CPI surprises in one direction or the other, simply to allow the Fed the opportunity to refine the messaging around whether or not they hike on Wednesday. Let us also not forget that Wednesday's events include more than just whether or not the Fed moves to 550. We also get an updated SEP, i.e. the Fed's beloved dot plot and economic projections, in which we will get a much better sense on how eager the committee is to move in July. 
If they increase the 2023 dot, clearly July is a live meeting, although August won't be. I get it. That's one. And contributing to the idea that the Fed would, all else equal, prefer to pause on Wednesday is the fact that we've started to see the Treasury Department begin the process of rebuilding the TGA, given the fairly aggressive increases in bill issuance that we've seen. We did get an official communication from the Office of Debt Management this week, which revealed that there's going to be a semi-permanent six-week CMB that's going to be auctioned regularly over the next month or so, and that the Treasury Department is aiming for an end-of-June cash balance of 425. So what this all means, and I would say as the market was generally expecting, is that liquidity is going to flow out of the overall financial system and into the bill market to take advantage of rates that are now well north of 5% and probably most consequentially well north of 5.05%, which is the rate that's offered at the RRP facility and a big reason why we're expecting that most of the cash to buy these bills is going to come out of the RRP. And when taken with the fact that the Fed is still running down its balance sheet, this means that monetary policymakers are probably going to want to wait and see the overall tightening implications on financial conditions resulting from this new liquidity shift. This doesn't mean that we're going to go back to a repeat of September 2019 when bank reserves became scarce, given that we now have $2 trillion in cash in the RRP as well as a standing repo facility, but it will probably translate to some upward pressure on funding costs, and that's worth at least something from a monetary policy tightening perspective, which advocates for at least a meeting, if not necessarily a longer time on hold at Terminal. And a wait-and-see stance from Powell resonates in the current environment. The economic data has not been uniformly strong. We did see a higher-than-expected payrolls print, but the unemployment rate increased three-tenths of a percent in a single month. Let us not forget that ISM services also disappointed, printing at 503 right up against that pivotal 50 level. In addition, initial jobless claims came in notably higher than expected, which added to investors' concerns that we're starting to see the momentum in the jobs market beginning to turn, albeit slower than many in the market had anticipated. Ultimately, though, given the relevance of consumption to the U.S. economy, The translation of a weaker jobs market into less willingness to spend is the pivotal aspect of the economic outlook for the balance of the year. In this context, we'll be watching Thursday's release of retail sales for the month of May, where expectations are for a two-tenths of a percent increase. For context, this is not an inflation-adjusted number. Therefore, if we do get a consensus four-tenths of a percent increase in CPI, retail sales will, in real terms, be effectively printing negative. And on the topic of consumption, it's worth mentioning that Congress has until June 30th to extend the forbearance for student loans. And if we don't see any congressional action, student loans will start having to be repaid by the end of August. And on top of lofty borrowing costs, this means that consumers will start to feel the pressure from another tax on consumption. And to be fair, the reason that the government stopped the payments on student loans was to allow more financial flexibility for a good portion of U.S. households during the pandemic. The fact that we are now in 2023 and that is being unwound follows intuitively, given everything that has occurred on the inflation front. But, Vail, as you aptly point out, it will serve to incrementally, at least, undermine the forward path of spending 
at a moment when the jobs market outlook is anything but clear. And student loans are an important part of this discussion and one that will presumably be changing quickly. But this week, we also took a look at loan delinquencies across credit cards, mortgages, auto loans. And what we've seen is that after the impressive decline in loan delinquencies in 2021 and then into 2022, now the percentage of those loans that are now 30 days or more delinquent is effectively back to where it was before the pandemic. Now, as a measure of the Fed's success in undoing both the monetary stimulus that they delivered, but also the fiscal stimulus that Congress delivered, this means that there's been a fair amount of progress made in terms of running through the excess savings that households built up during the pandemic, and also the fact that higher rates means higher debt service costs, which ultimately boils down to the bottom line of this dynamic, which is that consumption is going to begin to come under pressure, and that doesn't bode well for the overall state of the economy. In the early part of this year, GDP performed better than many were expecting, and so that leaves a stronger departure point, to be sure, but we would argue that the confluence of these factors are starting to show up in some of these data series. Ian, you touched on ISM as one, but it's also going to be important to starting to look at spending now that we've seen wage growth begin to moderate and some early signs that the jobs market is not weak but nor is it continuing to strengthen. And when we look at nominal wage growth, what we see is that average hourly earnings in May printed at 4.3% on a year-over-year basis. Prior to the pandemic, the average was roughly 3% on a year-over-year basis. So there's still plenty of room for wage gains to drift lower and still leave the Fed in the position of wanting to remain restrictive and avoid rate cuts in 2023 or even through the first quarter of 2024. Returning quickly to the dot plot, we'll be watching for the spread between the 2023 and 2024 dots for any indication of the speed at which Powell anticipates cutting rates next year. It is important to keep in mind that if the departure point is 525 or 550 when the Fed begins cutting rates, even 100 or 200 basis points of rate cuts would still leave policy in restrictive territory and be consistent with the Fed's objective of reestablishing price stability in the U.S. economy. And we've made it this far in the conversation without talking about the milestone price action we've seen both in outright rates in the shape of the curve this week related to that underlying line of thinking, Ian. With twos tens pressing back deeper into inverted territory, as negative as we saw before the regional banking crisis, and fives thirties also dropping back below zero, as the idea of the potential for another hike in July and then less probability of rate cuts in the second part of this year have made their way into valuations. Now, with each subsequent backup we see in outright rates, we continue to hear about dip buying interest, and we would characterize this flattening that we've seen over the past week as another opportunity to get into a core yield curve steepener position in anticipation that some of the risks we've discussed so far begin to solidify more clearly as the summer plays out. So with the pendulum of monetary policy sentiment now swinging very far in the hawkish direction and data coming back in focus over the next few weeks, we're going to be very eager to see just how sustainable this narrative is, which is ultimately going to be a function of the incoming data. And as you've observed, Ben, there's been a lot of progress made on a number of different fronts. Progress towards fighting inflation, progress towards bringing wages down, progress towards making sure that the U.S. Treasury market remains the go-to place for dollar liquidity, and as we're reminded, 
progress without finance is a nuisance. Truer words. In the week ahead, Treasury investors will have a wide variety of fundamental inputs to drive trading direction. Arguably, the most important will be Wednesday's FOMC decision. Our expectations remain for a pause in the month of June, which will allow the committee time to assess the impact of the cumulative tightening that has gone through the system thus far. Within the Fed events, we do hear from Powell in the press conference, and Q&A will certainly touch on the recent strength in the job market, as well as any concerns that the regional banking crisis and the associated credit tightening will weigh on the velocity of money and the overall state of the economy in the second half of the year. The Fed's Summary of Economic Projections, the SEP, will include the dot plot, which will give us guidance for 2023 and 2024 policy expectations. All else being equal, if the Fed is serious about a July rate hike, we would expect that the 2023 dot would be increased by at least one move. The increase in the unemployment rate suggests that the SEP's projection for the end of 2023 for the UNR at 4.5% doesn't need to be revised, although we will be watching for an upward revision to growth estimates, as well as context for how core PCE is seen ending this year by the Fed. Perhaps as important, or a close second, will be Tuesday's CPI numbers. Expectations are for a core print of four-tenths of a percent in the month of May. Within the details, we'll be watching for any early sign that used auto prices have been weighing on overall consumer prices. As a theme, the market is expecting that auto prices will put downward pressure on core CPI in June and July. If Tuesday's report offers early evidence of this dynamic, that will only lower the odds of a July rate hike. On the supply side, on Monday, we have an auction doubleheader, which includes 40 billion three-year notes in the morning, followed by 32 billion 10-year notes in the afternoon. There's no data on Monday, so our assumption is that the auction process will be relatively clean with enough of an opportunity to set up and redistribute the supply in an orderly fashion. Tuesday afternoon sees 18 billion 30 years, however. This auction might be a bit more difficult to underwrite given the fact that it occurs between CPI and ahead of the Fed and is presumably going to be a period of relative uncertainty as investors refine their expectations for precisely what to anticipate from the committee. We also have retail sales on Thursday, as well as a University of Michigan survey for the month of June. This data will include an update of the medium-term inflation and expectations, which, all else being equal, and the fact that there's no other data on Friday, will provide a trading impulse of some magnitude, given the importance of the inflation outlook at this particular juncture. Overall, we continue to be constructive on the treasury market at current levels, anticipating that 10-year yields will drift back to that 350 level, and while two-year rates will struggle to move materially lower, we do anticipate an extended period of consolidation 
as bill issuance ramps up and investors get a better sense of where the cash will come from to replenish the Treasury's general account. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the latest iteration of the fancy glasses are set to hit the shelves from our friends at Apple, we can't think of a better use of the new technology than to watch the three of us sitting around in a conference room talking about interest rates. Giving better context for clients who have previously said, this is virtually the most boring thing I've ever listened to. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. For full legal disclosure, visit bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.